Look at Acts chapter 23, and let's close out number 31. Cursing rulers is sin. Acts chapter 23. Paul's on trial. And Paul, verse 1, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in a good I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Verse 3 of Acts 23. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. How's that for a nice little example in the Bible that we should be able to humble ourselves and say I was wrong and I'm not going to do that anymore? The Bible's got all kinds of things in it for us. Stop thinking your wife should reverence you if you disrespect your civil authorities. Does that make sense? It should. Children in the Bible were killed for cursing, for mocking, or for disrespect to parents. He that setteth light by, by his parents was to be cursed. Serious capital punishment for setting light, mocking with facial expressions, or cursing parents. And that those kind of commandments, looking at other spheres of authority, should convince us of the reality of not cursing rulers. There's one that died in the last few days, 90 miles south of the Keys, that, you know, it'd be very easy for us to blow off and curse. He's God's appointed authority for that island for the last 50 years. And he did a good, right job defying the United States and winning. Whatever you think about him. But let's not despise him or curse him. Why? What good does it do? What good does it do you? Do you bring bring any judgment or punishment on him or any other evil government? You sin against the Lord. I've probably read the things that you've read about him. My age means that as a young boy, I was taught to not like him very much. But we'll trust the Lord. The Lord's taken care of him. We'll see what happens to that island now and see if they'll keep supplying us with baseball players. (laughs) And maybe a little bit of sugar and some cigars from time to time. Number 32, reap what you sow. Number 31, introduce this. Let's fill it out a little bit more. Number 32, reap what you sow. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 says, This law, it's an axiom of heaven. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Can't get away with it. You're going to pay the price. And when it comes to our government, God is not mocked. He will return to a man the disrespect that he shows rulers. God likes to reward in kind. The Bible teaches us that. In Psalm 7 and Psalm 9, the Lord likes to judge men with the judgment that they intended to give to others, like Haman's gallows. Haman and his ten sons were hung on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Remember that event. Why should your wife or children obey and reverence you if you despise rulers? This is a precious little point of advice in the Bible. Look at it, it's in the Bible, it's God's rule. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. God's law, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Don't deceive yourselves. God is not going to be mocked. He will fulfill this verse in your life, in my life. Solomon learned many things by observation. Proverbs chapter 24, you know where it describes that I went by the field of the slothful and I saw it all grown over and the walls fallen down. I realized, aha, this guy sleeps too much. You should be able to look at a person's assets and realize this person sleeps too much. That was not an unfair judgment by Solomon. It was just an observation he made by a man's fields. And if you look at the families of patriots, you will not find the most obedient families because the children are simply practicing what the parents have done toward the government. And we should should expect it, we should fear it, and we should avoid it. If you want submission by your children, submission by your wife, reverence by your wife, then let's submit and show reverence to those above us. 
Reap what you sow. Number 32. Let's go to 33. Analyze by five spheres. Analyze by five spheres. S-P-H-E-R-E-S. There are five spheres of authority. Parents, husband, master, magistrate, pastor. The Bible teaches five authority relationships that we meet with in life. The first one we meet are parents. Then we get a job. Then we get married. You know, there's three of them. We're, in, we're under a government and we join a church, and, we, and so we see the five spheres of authority. Here's what this rule means, or how we can use it. An easy way to measure conduct. I get so many questions. What should I do about this person? What should I do about this office? How far should I let this go? What should I do here? That's the simplest solution that I have learned in my few years on this earth, and from knowing that God has five spheres of authority, is to take the question and stick it into one of the other four authorities, and it will usually be answered very quickly. Questions may be confusing or formidable. This rule often clears the air quickly. How should you talk about rulers? What do you want from your wife and children? That just cuts through the chase so quickly. How or when can you resist rulers? When do you want your wife or children to resist you? Should men organize civil rebellion? Well, compare it to employees. Do you want them locking down a plant? To soldiers, telling their captain, no, we're not going to do that today. Maybe tomorrow, but not today. Or a church having a revolt against a pastor. Take the question that you have that you're not sure about and stick it into another sphere of authority and usually it will get answered. What should attitude, speech, or conduct be toward any or all authority spheres? They're, very, they're quite consistent. God used this argument. Right. One, of the, one of the verses that I could give you is Malachi 1.6. It's, it goes like this. A son honoreth his father. This is God speaking to Israel. A son honoreth his father and a servant his master, if then I be a father, you call me father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests, that despise my name. So there's an example. Jesus washed the feet of the apostles and said, If I, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. And it's comparing spheres of authority and persons in authority. And it's very helpful. When someone has asked me in, in, over the last decades, about, or told me that they were doing such and such, I would, if they owned a business, I would tell them, how would you like your employees doing that about you behind your back and spreading that information that you're listening to about our government? That loudmouth chatter against our government, would you like your employees doing that behind your back? Not really. Would you like your wife and children doing it when you're not at home? And it just helps answer. So number 33 is analyzed by five spheres. 34, yielding will trump rebellion. Yielding is better than rebellion. Sometimes the government may be upset at you. You can calm them by yielding, because yielding pacifieth great offenses. Ecclesiastes 10.4 says, If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, if for some reason the government's angry at you, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. You can get rid of any offense that you've caused government by a soft answer, keeping it home, not fighting them. The soft tongue breaketh the bone of princes. Proverbs 16.14 a soft answer turneth away wrath. Proverbs 15.1. It's just a, you all know this. Do you know how I know that you know it? Because when the state trooper lights up the cherry behind you and pulls you over and comes up to your window, you are incredibly polite. Yielding trumps rebellion. You don't go off on how you think that the speed limit law on that road is stupid. Even angry authority can be pacified, and God honors those honoring his offices. 
You know exactly how to respond to those policemen. We certainly and correctly advise children, wives, and employees to gladly do so. If a boss is mad at you, what does the Bible say to do? Submit to him and obey him cheerfully. 1 Peter 2 tells us that, 18 through 21. Wonderful verses about how to submit to even a froward master. That's a bad boss. Submit to him. You can calm him down, and the best life that you can have is to submit to him. And then that is something that is pleasing to God, and God's going to be on your side for treating your boss the way the Bible tells you to. God and angels love authority, and you'll be blessed for your obedience and honor. How can we pray and expect results in our church or our homes if we are guilty of civil disrespect of rulers? Let's not do that. Let's yield. Let's submit. In 1933, as soon as Franklin Roosevelt took the office of president, he passed an executive order making it a crime for Americans, $10,000 fine. Do you know what $10,000 was back then? It is absolutely nothing like a $10,000 fine today. A $10,000 fine for having any gold, coin, bullion in your possession. It all had to be turned over to the government. I was asked, would that have caused you any angst? Is the Pope a Catholic? Yes, it would have caused me angst. But we yield. What's the best thing you could have done? Turn your gold over at $20.47 an ounce to the Federal Reserve, taking that money and stuck it in the rigged stock market in 1933, and you would be right happier than you would be if you had kept the gold. Just as an example, it's hard. I was asked a very good question. Would you have had some angst about turning your gold over to the government? Yes. The reason for it? And sometimes you may not like Wikipedia, but I want to tell you, sometimes Wikipedia just lays it out there. And Wikipedia will, will tell you very quickly why that executive order was passed in 1933, because the Federal Reserve had expanded the money supply so much in the 20s and 30s that it could no longer provide the 40% backing that our government had told the Federal Reserve you will always have behind the currency. So they had to get some in their possession so they could keep inflating our money supply. All of that was to say, would there have been some angst? Yes. What will you do? Submit. Yielding Trump's rebellion. What are you going to do about it? Sue him? Stand in your street with your 410? I mean, honestly, trust the Lord. Who owns all the gold in the universe anyway? God does. All the riches are his. Let's put our trust in him. In 2016, we had eight years history of yielding and, and reverencing and respecting, and God gave us a different president. I'm referring back to, I believe that was a blessing because of how we've obeyed and tried to obey over the last eight years and longer. Number 35, rebellion is last resort. 35, rebellion is last resort. Disobedience against authority in any sphere is a last resort over meek yielding. We would tell a wife that. We would tell children that. We would tell all under authority. Disobedience against authority is the last resort. When the wicked rise, godly men hide rather than fight. They hide. They don't just go out in Main Street or get online and go after government or any other authority. They hide. The Bible tells us that. It tells us that in Proverbs 28 and verse 12 in these words. When righteous men do rejoice, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, a man is hidden. 28, 28. When the wicked rise, men hide themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. They come out of hiding when there's an opportunity for them to have protection. Rebellion is our last resort. Yielding is better. Paul did not resist the governor of Damascus to preach. He was in the city of Damascus. A garrison of soldiers were charged to not let him escape the city because he was preaching there. He did not, have a, he did not create a confrontation. He did not start a blog. He did not start a petition drive. He didn't go out in the streets. He was let down in a basket. And the Bible tells us about this event twice. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and, and the book of Acts. 
He was let down in a basket over the city wall, and he went and hid. A general rule is to submit until life is at stake. For instance, the midwives. The midwives disobeyed the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, in saving the Hebrew children alive. But there was life at stake. Rebellion is a last resort. Uh, there's, a, there's many examples like the Hebrew midwives in the Bible. Moses' parents. Moses' parents disobeyed the king by keeping Moses alive. But there was life at stake. And, and we've been through all this in detail in documents on our website entitled Christian Ethics. Number 36. Prayer is most powerful. Prayer is most powerful. Prayer is the most powerful thing you do in any part of life, especially politics. Civil rulers are out of your reach and are carefully guarded and honored by God himself. But those same rulers are manipulated by God, as we've already learned in previous rules, according to his sovereign will. By prayer, you can move God to move them. For we are his children they are not. Just think about that, the dynamics of our, of our relationship to God in heaven and then his relationship to those in Washington, D.C. We can't influence Washington, D.C. I've seen lots of efforts to try to influence Washington, D.C. in my 60 years. But can we influence God as his children calling upon him in prayer? And can he influence? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. How about Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes and Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh and others that were moved by God's people under their care, praying for them? How, what happened to Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12 when the church made constant prayer to God for Peter? Serious things happened, and it's all recorded for us right there. Think about Hezekiah and how he prayed to get some mercy from Artaxerxes, Darius, to go back to Jerusalem. Prayer is the most powerful thing we can do, and we should believe it, and we should embrace it, and we should do it. Right. We shouldn't just talk about it. That's why we pray for our country. We thank God for our country, because in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, it says, we're to supplicate and to entreat and to pray and to give thanks. So we do that, and we're trying to do that better over the last four years, because it was really... 2012, when I presented to you, living under Obama, the slide presentation, and I admitted to you, though I thought I knew 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3 very well, out of the four things we're supposed to do in prayer, it had never struck me that we were to give thanks for Nero. Remember, every exhortation in the New Testament about civil authority is referring to the Roman Caesar and his appointees. Give thanks for them. We've done it. Let's keep doing it. There's going to be perplexity from time to time, but we can do it. Think about Hezekiah and his, the power and prayer of Hezekiah, Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah, the church for Peter. Great examples in the Bible. We should hate worry Fussing, fear, disrespectful petitions. Respectful petitions have their place. What has its place? I gave it to you in the preaching on Romans chapter 13. It's in an outline on our website as to when and how Christians can respectfully disagree with their government and communicate their thoughts. Hate, worry, fussing, fear, disrespectful petitions, confidence in voting. Let's not put our trust in confidence in voting. Let's not study past necessary about some of these things. Let's not demonstrate or have writing campaigns, whining or organizing. Let's pray. It's the most powerful thing you can do. One righteous man on his knees, begging God, living a righteous and virtuous life, thanking God for his government, but praying for it. He can move mountains. Jesus said you could if you had faith as a grain of a mustard seed. That's the thing we ought to do. We should connect civil honor and praying to the election results that we've had or stop our praying. I've said this several times. We should make a connection or we should stop praying. Because when God answers a prayer and God is merciful to us, we should make the connection or why do you pray? 37. Only one real Messiah. 
only one real Messiah. President-elect Trump is not a Messiah in any sense of the Bible concept or word. The Messiah is God's anointed and appointed son that would be the savior of his people. It is a foolish shame when men will corrupt the Bible to present our new president-elect as a Messiah. Only one real Messiah. There are no prophecies or even hints in the Bible about president-elect Trump. There's one Messiah. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the Son of God. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the blessed and only potentate. And president-elect Donald John Trump reports to him entirely for even his next breath. David foretold a perfect ruler, and Paul used it in Hebrews chapter 1, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is called faithful and true. He alone is God's glorious king. We're not supposed to put trust in princes, but in the God that created them all. Number 38, voting avoids tempting God. Voting avoids tempting God. Sometimes Christians have difficulty deciding whether they will even vote or not. Tempting God, which is a sin, includes neglecting means he gave us in order to presume on him. We shouldn't presume on him. We shouldn't hope he's going to take care of us. We shouldn't pray he's going to take care of us unless we're going to use the means that he puts in front of us. Jesus did not presume on the Bible, though it was quoted accurately by the devil, on the top of the pinnacle of the temple to leap. Because Psalm 91 says, Thou wilt keep him in all his ways, lest he dash his foot against a stone. And the devil tempted Jesus with that to leap off the temple. Jesus would not do it because Jesus could go down some other way. And so he went down another way. He used the stairs. And he told the devil, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Even though there's a Bible verse involved, there were still means to use. He didn't have to jump and presume on Scripture. We can't say, give us this day our daily bread and then sit at home and not go looking for a job. You have to get out and hit the street and find the job and pray, give us this day our daily bread. David was beautiful. David is running in the, is in the wilderness. Absalom is now king in Jerusalem. Absalom now has David's counselor, Ahithophel. Ahithophel was brilliant. When he spoke, it was like the oracles of God speaking. David grabs Hushai and tells him, go defeat the council of Ahithophel for me. He prays and he sends back Hushai to lie to Absalom and become a false counselor for him to overthrow the council of Ahithophel. And it all worked. David prayed, but then David did something. And I'm not saying that lying gets you a job faster than telling the truth. You're connecting, my meta, you're connecting my Bible examples in the wrong way. David used Hushai brilliantly. And the exchange between Hushai, Absalom, and Ahithophel is wonderful. Ahithophel had never been told that his advice was not perfect. And so as soon as he heard it for the first time, he just went home and hung himself. And that's overthrowing the counsel of Ahithophel by the blessing of God upon David's means. Sometimes Christians have difficulty deciding whether they will even vote or not. Well, since our nation gives you this privilege to pick a platform, pick a position, pick promises, pick a person, you should use it. You should go through any door the Lord gives you in a matter that's important to you. In a political system that allows a platform, a party, a person to be chosen, use it. We do not sit around waiting for jobs to call us. To do so would be tempting God. Marriage is good, but Paul said to avoid it in a time of great distress. This is wisdom. It's not black and white. It's gray. Gray means you have to take the Bible principles and apply them for unique situations. There was a unique situation in Corinth. Marriage is ordinarily good. In Corinth, marriage was no longer good because to have a wife, then to have children, and to have them taken away from you, the wife violated or the children violated, just made life a whole lot more complicated than if you didn't marry and didn't have children. And so 1 Corinthians 7 verse 26 says, it's better to be single during this present distress. 
There were means to protect yourself. The means was to give up something God calls good. Marriage is good, ordinarily. Great men in both testaments appealed to government for help outside principle. They didn't care what the governors believed. They just wanted help. And they would appeal for that help. And you get to appeal for help when you go in and vote. If you pray for your rulers but do not vote for your rulers, check your hypocrisy. How are you measuring that? That's jumping off the temple. 39. We have two parties. 39. We have two parties. Christians are supposed to have discernment and wisdom for the times. Rule number 39 or suggestion number 39 is we have two parties. Paul knew the Jews' two parties and played them against each other in Acts 23. He played the Sadducees against the Pharisees on trial for his life and did a really very good job. That doesn't apply directly. It's just amusing and informative of how wise the Apostle Paul was to use parties. Voting a third-party candidate, no matter how principled, is for your opposition. If you'd have voted for any third-party candidate, or if you did, in this particular election, that was a vote for Hillary Rodham Clinton. There's no way around that. You are a conservative by nature, or you wouldn't be part of this church. And if you voted for a third party, no matter what your reasoning, your vote was for Hillary Clinton because you took a vote away from her opponent because there were only two opponents. No one else ran in the election. If you don't understand that, I'll explain numbers to you. All the rest are a joke. If you are so committed to principle, here's what you ought to do. Write in Jesus Christ on your next election. And if he can't be found for to be your party's candidate, then write yourself in. That way we can get the most principled person. Yes, there are nine states where it's against the law to write in a presidential candidate, and South Carolina is one of them, so you need to move because principle is so important to you. Amen. Go to another state and write yourself in. A conservative voting for a third-party candidate is actually voting for the Democratic National Party. The conservatives that voted for Ross Perot actually voted for President Clinton. We've been through this before. There is very little godly principle in elections. Haven't you learned that yet? Or am I too old? The two parties will not have any godly conviction. It can't happen. In a two-party system, that means half the country is going to all of a sudden fall in love with godly principles based on the Bible? I don't think so. I trow not, as Jesus would say. Would we like that to happen? Yes. Could it accidentally happen? Yes. Could God providentially bring it about to happen? Yes. Could God get someone into office that then develops godly principles? Yes. We pray for these things. But you're supposed to be wise. God expects us to be wise. Remember what I read? Who is as the wise man? Ecclesiastes chapter 8. He knows time and judgment. Why would you waste a vote on a candidate that nobody has ever heard? Nobody. I mean that absolutely. Nobody has ever heard of, nor will they ever have any influence anywhere. One of them is getting a recount of three states right now. If you think principle is precious in voting, then write yourself into the Lord Jesus Christ. You make mistakes. Let's just be wise. Wise and think about why would Paul, on trial for his life, want to publicly declare great unity with the Pharisees? Did Paul spend his whole ministry fighting the Pharisees? His whole ministry. Did Jesus spend his whole ministry fighting the Pharisees? His whole ministry. The leaven of the Pharisees. So when Paul's on trial, he looks out there and realizes, I've got Republicans and Democrats Uh, I think I can stir this pot a little bit right now. And he jumps in and says, I'm a Pharisee, my father was a Pharisee, and the reason I'm on trial is the resurrection of the dead. Because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees hated the doctrine, and there Paul was saying, I'm a Pharisee. What? I thought you were Christian. I'm a Pharisee, my father's a Pharisee, and I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead. Well, within a few seconds, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were fighting trying to tear each other apart, and Paul was left alone. 
He just looked at he just looked at a situation and chose one. We look at our situation. I'll help you look at that situation in just a moment. Number forty, lesser of two evils. Lesser of two evils. We hate evil in any kind, anywhere. But sometimes we have to choose the lesser of two evils. But sometimes evil means something different than you might be thinking right now. Number 40, lesser of two evils. Often there will be no clear party or person to vote for, so you must limit the danger. It is here those without wisdom vote principle, while wise men vote prudence. I've taught this for as long as I've been a pastor. Prudence over principle. You're never going to get principle in government. In a world, we have all the principle that we want in the government of our kingdom and of our holy nation. Perfect principle, perfect character, and a perfect person is our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what we're really, truly part of. This nation is never going to have it, and it doesn't matter anyway. Give me a businessman that knows how to manage all the polls on him in, in office without very much character, but he knows how to run a business. It's the same way we pick board of directors for a good-sized company. Mm-hmm. Characters, character does not give you business acumen. We have two parties, the lesser of two evils. Lesser of two evils is holy wisdom. The only real evil is the candidate and the party. You're not being evil for recognizing there's two evils coming my way. I think I'll choose the lesser of them. Are any of you thinking of examples in the Bible, or would you like my long list of them? That this is prudent, biblical wisdom. This is how you should think. Wisdom is not black and white principle. It sees real issues and deals with them below the surface appearance. Jesus said, judge righteous judgment. Don't judge things by the appearance. Here's some Bible examples. I want you to feast on these. This is why I love God's Word. I hate vain thoughts. When I read or hear people ridiculing our position of lesser of two evils, they don't have a clue. They're infants when it comes to the Word of God. They waste their votes. They don't understand politics. They don't understand Bible wisdom. Let me give you some Bible examples. Solomon is sitting on the throne of Israel, and Bathsheba comes into him and says, Son, I have a request. Solomon says, I'll give you anything you want to half the kingdom and sit here right beside me. I want Abishag for Adonijah. Sorry, I'm going to kill Adonijah. I'm not going to give you a thing. How did he, choose, how did he do that? Wisdom. Right. He chose the lesser of two evils. Not giving his mother what he wanted, what she wanted was a terrible evil. It would have left Adonijah in the country with a woman that knew state secrets by having spent the last year of David's life in bed with him, if you remember who Abishag was. I don't have time to explain all these. Joseph had a decision to make with Mary in Matthew chapter 1. He chose the lesser of evils to put her away privately. David, when Joab killed Abner, made choices to leave Joab in his government because it was a lesser evil than killing off some of the best supporters and that ran the army for him. Just think, David, did God give David three choices? Three years being chased by your enemies. No. Three years of famine, three months of being chased by your enemies, three days of pestilence from heaven. Three evils. I'm using evil in the way that I meant it when I said lesser of two evils. What's the effect going to be on us? We choose the lesser. God gave David three choices. David chose, I I think I can handle three days because it's going to be in the Lord's hands rather than in my enemy's hands. Do you remember him saying that? Paul's choice to stand trial in Rome. He is in Caesarea. He is before Herod Agrippa II. And he realizes that the tone in the room is moving to give the Jews their request for him to go back to Jerusalem to be tried. Have you felt that moment with Paul? He gave the best testimony. He matched the order that came out of Jerusalem. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. He chose the lesser of two evils. He knew that going back to Jerusalem was highly risky because of the Jews that would lie in wait for him on the way there, and the trial would not be fair in Jerusalem because the political expediency there under the pressure of the Jews would be too much to bear. He chose the lesser of two evils. The Bible's filled with these examples. 
He chose to stand trial in Rome, not Jerusalem. Joseph subsidized pagan priests and married a pagan. What if Joseph would have told Pharaoh, I think your women stink. They are... I can't say those words here. Why, why did he do that? Joseph was a man. Was there anybody in the Bible with more principle than Joseph? Nope. Joseph chose the lesser of evils. He married a pagan and he fathered children with her and God honored that by those two children being two tribes of Israel. He subsidized the pagan priests of Egypt. What was his alternative? I won't do that. I think your religion stinks, and your priests are the stupidest men I've ever met. That would be principle. Did Joseph do that? No, because that is stupid. Joseph said, thank you for the beautiful wife. And Pharaoh, let's not charge your priests for food. They're your priests. They're 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 the heads of the religion of Egypt. Let's take care of them. They don't have to sell their lands. Everybody else does. These are issues so far beyond going to vote. How about Esther? Do you have a daughter here? We've heard she's very beautiful. We want to see her. Well, they could have shot the guys at the door. Esther, if she'd have been of principle, would have taken arsenic. Right? If she had principle, she'd have taken some deadly poison. Because there's no way that she should ever get in a bedroom with Ahasuerus of the Persian Empire. Right? Wrong. You're not biblical. I'm giving you a whole laundry list. Wisdom is not black and white. Wisdom is gray. Wisdom knows what to do in in a set of circumstances on how to choose the lesser of two evils. She could have killed Ahasuerus in bed. She could have hidden a knife in her lingerie. Had it ever been done before? Ehud did it. He killed King Eglon with one in his lingerie. I speak as a fool for a moment. I love the Word of God. It's so full of them. Okay, let's just keep going. Daniel did similar in Babylon. Do you know how many decisions Daniel had to make in Babylon to choose the lesser of two evils? every single day of his life with the legislation that he would have had to have been part of? How about mercy to break the Sabbath for a snack? You man of principle? Then you can wait until next week or next month for your snack, right? But you know what God allows? Mercy. Christian ethics should help. It's a document on our website about these kind of things. It's the lesser of two evils. Sometimes we don't know we read about the character of the Republican candidate. We read about the character of the Democrat candidate. Oh, what do we do? Well, it's the lesser of two evils. Well, how do I know which is the lesser of two evils? Let the wicked element of America decide for you. That's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Let the wicked, okay, number 41, vote against the godless. <laughs> vote against the godless. You hate to pick a candidate or a party? Which has godless American chosen to hate? In recent elections, and I'm talking about for the last number, several decades, the most godless elements of America were on only one side. Right. They all were united on one side against the other candidate. So you vote for the other candidate, because there must be something good about them that they hate so much. When they agree in a two-party vote, there is something good about the opposite candidate. Listen to this list, and you tell me whose side they were on in the recent election. Abortionists, ACLU, actors, anarchists, child rebels, college students, European Union, evolutionists, feminists, Hollywood, humanists, illegal aliens, the media, MTV, Muslims, NEA, NOW, pornography, socialism, sodomites, unions. Who are they for? They're always for the same party. It's so beautiful. They make it so easy. Just lead me to the R button. So I can slap all those godless elements, the most God-hating elements of our society. 
Because if, here's the other alternative. I want to vote for the one that really loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, good luck hunting. And that's all I can offer you is luck. Nature has a role identifying the evil party. Does the Bible tell us nature can teach us things? Then who can even speak about creation? Who can condemn sodomy in different ways and to lesser or greater degrees? Hair, parents, authority, and so forth. Nature tells us. When these elements line up against the candidate or party, that party or candidate must be a little right. Learn demographics. Isaiah 3 tells us that we want to be careful and avoid the danger of God's judgment when women and children become our oppressors. Do you know what demographics of a vote are? Where do you, how do you think women vote? How do you think our idiots in college vote? Just the, the two weeks ago. Easy. You don't want children and women to be your oppressors? Then vote for the other candidate. It continually leads us. Those with no Christian religion, those with the most education, those with liberal socialist states, just look at it, the demographics. Globalism is not scriptural. Who is global in perspective and who is national? God is a nationalist and he expects us to be nationalists. There isn't globalism in the Bible. From the beginning in Genesis chapter 10, the nations were divided on the earth by God through the sons of Noah. And God hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined beforehand the bounds of their habitation. Right. Acts chapter 17 is Paul preaching on Mars Hill in Greece. And so you've got these tip-offs in the Word of God. You, you know, that long list that I gave you, just look at any one of them. The National Education Association, they stand for everything that is contrary to Bible Christianity. Whose side are they on? Go the other side. 42, do not vote character. 42, do not vote character. Character is hard to prove because you don't know either candidate and does not indicate ability in an unprincipled nation. What if George Bush got drunk when he was going to Yale? Or what if Bill Clinton smoked weed at Oxford? What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? But yet that stuff is pulled out, vetted, blasted around, blown up, triple headlines. So what? They both did it. The personal character or integrity of the candidate is far less than his platform. Our laws are not going to end up being set by his personal character. The person's effect, the president that we get is by, his effect on us is going to be by his party, by his performance on the job, by his position on various subjects by the promises that he's made in his campaign, by the appointees that he picks for his counselors and advisors, by the justices and the judges that he puts in positions of influence, they make the real decisions that affect our lives. A national election is not choosing a pastor. So you don't get to use 1 Timothy 3. You don't get to use Exodus 18.21. You don't get to use Jehoshaphat's list. Because you know why? There aren't any that qualify. I hate having a rule entitled, I hate having a rule with these four words. Do not vote character. But we're looking for a business political manager that can run a country. We're not looking for a pastor, a priest, or someone to replace Moses. If you demand godly character, if you want to talk about character and have a discussion and talk about character, you will be forced to compromise at some point because a Bible-believing, Bible-practicing Christian is not going to make it to one of the two parties to be their candidate. So you're going to compromise somewhere. Where are you going to compromise? Let's just be wise and compromise early. Stockholders pick board members. Is character or business acumen more crucial? He doesn't kick his dog at night. How is that going to help run your business? He doesn't kick his dog. He gives 10% of everything to UNICEF. What character do you want to talk about? Because the real character isn't to be found. The real character. Nursing fathers and nursing mothers in the Bible need not be Christians. They only need to help us. That makes them nursing fathers and nursing mothers. Not that they love our religion. Third parties are vain is number 43. Third parties are vain. 
Libertarians sound good if you are spiritually dull or carnal because God and his word are the victims of their victimless crimes. Number 43 is third parties are vain. I used to play around with being a libertarian just to get away from the other two parties. Uh, what they call victimless crimes, God is the victim. Righteousness is the victim. The Bible's the victim. Society's the victim. Constitutionalists live in the wrong century and overlook de jure versus de facto. More on that later. Not today. I wanted it to be today. Constitutionalists live in the wrong century. What are they talking about? They don't know the Constitution. They couldn't defend any part of it anywhere to any audience, but they want to yap about it. Because I can't wait just this little tiny bit. Matthew, Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 20. The Pharisees get together with some Herodians. Let's go trap him in his words so that we can turn him over to the governor. Let's turn him over to Pilate for sedition because he is one principled man. Master, we know that thou art true and you have no regard for any man, but you only speak the truth. Is it lawful? They asked a question of legality. They were not asking about Rome's laws. Do you understand that? Is it lawful? They were asking about Jewish law. They were asking a constitutional question. Is it constitutional? Is it constitutional for us to pay tribute? Yes or no? I've listened to this drivel for so long. What did Jesus do to blow through all of it? Did he say, show me the Constitution? They'd have given him an Old Testament. They would have given him Genesis through Deuteronomy. That is the law of God. Is it lawful? Show me Moses. Did Jesus know about Moses? Show me your money. Who is that? Caesar. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And those men that wanted to have him killed, it says they marveled. They were sawn off at the legs because they understood the difference between that de jure constitutional government and a de facto government that had replaced it. And our constitution's been replaced for a long time and it wouldn't matter if it hadn't been. They get to interpret it, not you. You were never sworn to interpret it or to defend it. That is their job. Communists or atheist socialists that are contrary to most all the Bible teaches. Green lovers or pantheists that think Mother Earth is far more than a metaphor. Voting a third party makes some feel good and virtuous, but they vote the opposite of their intentions. We have a silent majority or a minority in America. Verse 40, uh, rule number 44. Suggestion number 44, with this we end very quickly. Number 44, silent majority or minority. The Bible teaches this. Number 43 was third parties are vain. Number 44, silent majority or minority. America, we got to see this to a degree by the pundits being proven wrong about Mr. Trump. They blew it. All the polls takers blew it. They were starting to run up to 90% probability of success for the Democrats on Tuesday night. They blew it because they did not know about there's a whole group of quiet people that don't blog all the time and that, that don't use social media all the time and talk about their political views, but they do have enough gumption to get up and drive to the polling place which is the other party's problem. They, can't, they don't have enough gumption to get up and go. But they do a whole lot of yapping. And they love to yap in the streets. But they can't walk down the street, take a left, take a right, and find a polling booth. So it's called the silent majority or minority. It is a group of people in a country who do not express their opinions publicly, and it is biblical. I've already read you a couple of the verses. Proverbs 28, 28. When the righteous are in authority, the... the when the, when the wicked are in authority, wise men hide themselves. Warren Harding, one of our presidents, Calvin Coolidge, one of our presidents, used this expression. Richard Nixon popularized it. Wise men by character and nature do not talk as much as fools babble and shout. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Wise men keep it in till afterwards. 
Fools just love to throw it out there. So if you listen to the DIN, that's D-I-N, the Democrats were going to win. But all you had to do was think about, are there people in this country that care for a few things and have the gumption to get up and go pull a lever without saying anything on social media? Yes. Weren't they surprised? Wise men, by prudence and knowledge, know when to restrain their opinions. The prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself. So prudent men do not always say everything publicly that they may be thinking, believing, or going to do. It is a scriptural concept with limitations that do not apply to all voting segments, but it's been true in America, and it was true just a couple of weeks ago. Righteous men hide themselves under evil rulers. Sometimes it is a small minority, sometimes a very small remnant, and we need to remember that. What we believe and what we stand for, you know, that we are so strange that we would look at that 1777 or 1779 Thanksgiving proclamation and love it, we're weird. It puts us in a very, very, very small minority. But when we look at the large picture of the lesser of two evils, there's a whole lot of others out there that see there is less evil with this particular businessman coming out of New York who made more gaffes intentional and unintentional on the campaign trail than any other candidate we've seen in a long time. That's how they're thinking. That's how they're speaking about him and thinking about him. But there is more righteousness. There's more wisdom. There's more truth associated with his promises, his platform, his party, his position. That's where I'm going to go. You know, they're not on social media. Nobody wanted to be on social media, really saying that they were going to vote for Donald Trump because it didn't get you very many friends. You know, you know, friends are important on social media. And likes. People that like to be liked a lot, need to be liked a lot, and need to have all these friends they never met. You don't talk. You had to, you had to restrain yourself because something was going to come flying up about groping or, um, you know, making clothes in the Dominican Republic or over underpaying and over overcharging guests at Trump Tower and underpaying staff and you know all the stuff that came up but the bible tells us and we can still be thankful that in america there is a silent majority that did not say very much and so it did not look like it could happen and the pollsters were making their bets but there was a silent majority and the bible tells us that we we shouldn't be broadcasting our opinions and views we should keep hidden when we're in a state of the wicked being in authority and not understanding or appreciating what we stand for as Christians. And so there's wisdom in it, whether it be Paul being let down over a wall in a basket or just keeping our mouths shut and going about and doing our business and cooperating as far as we can. Look at the cooperation of Esther and Joseph and Daniel and others. They knew how to cooperate and get along with pagan governments. They gave us a great example. I want us to all learn that wisdom. I want us to advance and please God in everything that we do and grow in favor with God and men and not offend either one unintentionally or intentionally. May God give us grace and wisdom in all these things. Amen.